guys, welcome back to another episode of Layered Butter. I'm Rodrigo Cocting. Hey, it's Raf Cordero. And we have a good episode for you guys today, an exciting episode, episode for you guys today. A very informative, hopefully, episode for you guys today. Before we get started, once again, it's time for some housekeeping items. Thank you to everyone that has been pre-ordering our Studio Ghibli issue. Um, if you're a Studio Ghibli fan and you don't want to get the pre-order uh, of the issue, get out of here. No, I'm kidding. If you don't want to get the pre-order, <laughs> if you don't want to get the pre-order, we also have digital options available. Um, you can find links in the store section of layeredbutter.com. Uh, plus, if you're one of our patrons, uh, you can get the digital access code covered by your monthly support. Shout out to Thea, who is the latest person to join our Patreon hey family. Yo. There we go. Your support means the world to us and makes this all possible. Onto the podcast, Raf. Yeah, let's do today it. We, today we have someone who I'm very excited for because of her sharp wit and her biting sense of humor. None other than Jen Mitchell. How's it going, Jen? I'm doing well. Thanks for inviting me, guys. It's such a pleasure. Hey. I'm excited. <laughs> yeah, no problem. So let's you. get this started. Let's kick off our pre-show. Uh, the biggest news of the week in terms of in the of the movie world, I would say, are the Oscars nominations, which are wow. out. So, wow. Raf, again, oh give us gosh. a quick update of what happened. Oh, my God. I mean, OK, so uh, there there's a couple that are um, pretty steady, right, in terms of their nominations. We expected, especially for Best Actress, um, uh, um, the regular five who got nominated. Everything came through. Uh, Andre Day, uh, Mulligan, McDormand. Uh, Davis and Kirby, but some big random shockers out there. I mean, let, let, let's give praise there to um, Maria Bakalova, who was the, is probably the only one in her category to be nominated at every other precursor prior to the Oscars. And I mm-hmm. think she's going to be the front runner for her category. Is that insane? We live in a timeline where um, uh, Maria Bakalova, a nobody, I mean, not anymore. She's wow. a somebody now. Wow. But right, <laughs> oh right. my gosh! <laughs> um, but but I mean, you know, um, this was her biggest breakthrough, and uh, she could most likely be an Oscar winner. Um, you know, April. Um, yeah. And I, I want to bring up Lakeith Stanfield. This is insane. I mean, I, I find this hilarious too. Lakeith, who was in um, Judas and the Black Messiah, was mm-hmm. originally campaigned as the lead actor in the film with Daniel yeah. Kaluuya supporting. And Lakeith ended up in the best supporting ballot as well um, yeah. with Daniel Kluya, which nobody expected. And I yeah. think that bamboozled almost everyone. So I guess Jesse Plemons is the lead actor of that movie. Bro, I don't know. <laughs> Are you kidding me? <laughs> I, mean, I, I think it was arguable, too, at one point that um, Daniel Kluya could be seen as a lead. Right. But I mean, it's totally Lakeith. Lakeith is 100 percent number one on that call sheet. Uh, but he's yeah. supporting actor. So I don't know. Go. But it's nice to see him. I mean, I, I'm a big fan. Jen, let's go to you. Did you have any thoughts on these nominations? Um, you know what? I, I, I it seemed right. Like just, just based on the movies that came out, it was such a weird year with the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't yeah. have any real surprises on here. These are um some of the people that I just saw. You know, just being on social media and um just mm-hmm. hearing that the. The reports and listening, reading up on what was coming out, I, nothing surprised me. Um, it it it's seemed rather. Stanfield. <laughs> I mean, other than that, I thought his, his okay, comments okay. on Twitter. I thought his comments on on uh, Instagram were pretty funny. Uh, like Keith, he's yeah, like, yeah, "Oh, I'm surprised funny. too. I thought I was uh, <laughs> lead actor. Okay, um, but I wonder if they were also playing it safe because I mean, like at the end of the day, it's his 
group, right? That puts his name yeah, up for the category. 100%. So, um, yeah, I think he needs to, you know, maybe talk with his agent in the future about uh, <laughs> yeah. how they choose wonder, to present him. But that's very interesting. I wonder if that'll work against him because now you have uh, fans of the movie like dividing their vote between two supporting actors, right? Yeah, 100%. Um, we'll see. Uh, we'll see. Uh, obviously, when the Oscars do end up happening, the Layered Butter podcast will have a much more in-depth exploration mm-hmm. of the award show. Uh, on my end, the only surprise, and I say this surprise because I expected it to happen, not because I feel like it's uh, wrong in any way, is that uh, Sorkin wasn't nominated for, for director. Um, I know your your buddy, uh, the another round director, got in. And yeah, Thomas like, Vinterberg. There we go. And I think that's right. I don't know that. I I, I think the direction uh, of the trial of the Chicago Seven was um, great. I guess I don't know. So it not not. It too, was very generic not, to me. And in, yeah. And I wanted to say that I think Sorkin is a phenomenal writer, um, and I think his direction is very simple. And I think you know. Uh, when he did uh, Steve Jobs with Danny Boyle and uh, obviously Social Network with David Fincher, those are two very visual directors with a distinct style and really elevate his work. Uh, Sorkin? Nah, let, let, let's yeah. see. Uh, I want to see one more round from him and then I'll see what. I feel like he really trusts his uh, actors to know how to do their job. And so I felt yeah. like that he, he was just like, like, let me step back. You guys know what you're doing, know the lines. Like, I just, yeah, feel it out. So. Let me just get the coverage I need. You guys will just work on the script. We're good. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, The next part that I wanted to talk about is the question of what will the 2021 Oscars look like, right? The ceremony. Now, um, we've gone through several different iterations of award shows to varying degrees of success, I would say. And now we have some news of what the Oscar ceremony might look like. Uh, Raf, can you give us, I guess, the quick summary of what's expected I, I think they just announced that it's only going to be nominees and one guest um uh and presenters going to be at the ceremony i think it's going to take place in two places in los angeles i think mm-hmm. union station and obviously the dolby theater um and i would assume a lot of the um uh cast and crews who are usually invited to this um event are going to be uh attending digitally or zoom mm-hmm. i don't know on the zoom on the zoom right um (laughs) and i don't even know if there's even a host did they announce a host i don't even know but i think um, i think after kevin hart they just never again decided like kevin oh yeah they didn't announce anyone right yeah Yeah, i don't think they've come back to a host yet um Uh, i i wanted to mention sorry i know you're gonna interrupt me but um i think the coolest thing that i noticed is the one of the three producers doing this telecast is one of my favorite directors is Steven Soderbergh, who I did. I mean, I didn't even know that he's producing this um, uh, uh, telecast. I think it's going to be interesting. I hope it is. Um, uh, uh, Soderbergh always does a you know something in work. So let's see if it affects you know the event. I don't know. Jen, um, I guess since we don't have any extra info on the Oscar ceremony, I'm going to ask you a different type of question. Have you watched any award ceremony during COVID that you felt has either done really well or done really poorly that stands out to you? Um, the one that I think that I might have, I liked the most, I think was the, was it the Emmys last year? Uh, or was that earlier this year? It, with No, no, it was last year. It, I was, think it was last, last year. I, I just thought, 
Yeah, I just liked how, especially like just visually um, looking at all the cast, I like that they were together in their own groups. So you still yeah. felt that you got like the star power of seeing like all your favorite, you know, actors and actresses um, all together in one space kind of celebrating it. And so when you saw, yeah. you know, people like Shit's Creek when, um, it was really exciting because they were all there. Um, oh, I was yeah. Like, yeah. I I it, right? It was, yeah, it was kind of charming. I did like that. And I liked... Um, uh, how they had people standing outside all of the parties. And so you really didn't know if you were to win until like they announced it and then they just left the room. I thought that was the shadiest <laughs> thing ever. Like this person, and it made me wonder like, is that person really there with an empty briefcase? Like, did they just open it? Just the visual of that I thought was hilarious. So I think if they can do it like the Emmys, I'd be pleased. I enjoyed that one. Yeah. That sounds you know good. what I realized I mean, too? Um, uh, every year they have a nominee luncheon where they take this grand picture of all the nominees. Are we going to get one where it's all photoshopped? <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Jen, to your point of, of the ones that you feel really landed, um, I think like the ones that rely a little bit more heavy on like digital prepackaged components really stand out. Like yeah. uh, the Grammys, I mean, I guess not. there was not all digital, but like some of the performances that seemed almost digital were really good. Uh, I think last year to the BET awards when they had like, you know, Megan the stallion doing some digital stuff like that looked really good. And so it's like, I think the more that you were the less that you rely on live and kind of show us the absence uh, or like what used to be there, the better the ceremony will be. But I guess we'll have to see. I do think it's funny that they brought in uh, Steven Soderbergh, as you were saying, considering he dressed crazy, Contagion and we're in the middle of Contagion. So right. we'll see. Yeah. Uh, just to wrap it up before we we take a break, Snyder Cut, early reviews are out. Raph, you are the diehard Snyder Cut of this group. Um, yeah. I guess it's just, if for people haven't seen... You can go to Rotten Tomatoes, all these places to see the reviews. It's roughly when it was yesterday, it was at 73 percent. Right now it's at 78 percent, I think. So it seems to be going up. It seems I would say 78 is a good movie, right? Yeah. But some of the reactions you're seeing on Twitter seems to indicate that people don't think that 78 is enough for what this movie deserves. (laughs) You know what? So, Raph, let's go to you. Is 78 a movie that's 7 out of 10, 8 out of 10, is that good enough for you, or do you need it to be a 10? For a Zack Snyder DC film, I think that's perfect. Um, yeah. I, I, I think it also relies on the groundwork that DC has done prior to. I mean, they don't have enough time, or they didn't have enough time uh, to lay a lot of the emotional standpoints what they did with Marvel. So I get it. I, I think 7 out of 10 is great, or even 8 out of 10. Um, uh, some of the biggest reviews I'm seeing is that, you know, it's like a fully realized vision for Zach. And, um, I, you know, I, I want to get like hashtag justice for Snyder um, rolling because it's, it's finally done. And I think um, his, um, uh, his vision and his dream to have this film complete in his own way without any uh, meddling from the studios or other directors, blah, 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 could taint or can, can tamper that. So I'm happy. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and uh, I think for the general audience, if you liked the old or the uh, other films he's done, it's going to be more of the same, right? And I don't think anyone should change that perspective any differently. Um, if you hated the old, uh, the other films, you'll probably not like this one. But I, I yeah. think it's just fitting to see this film finally come to light. Jen, are you looking forward to watching this uh, four-hour work of art that is? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's because I do enjoy uh, th- those movies, and so I. I 
I feel like it is a small win for the fans, I guess. Like in this, you need to yeah. take any sort of happiness you can get from anywhere. Um, yeah. I don't know. Like for, that's a long time. I mean, the good thing is, if, I mean, I'm assuming it's going on a streaming service. So like I can break yeah, it up yeah, and yeah. watch how I want. Um, I don't yeah. know if I would have done that in a theater. I'm going to be honest. And I miss the going to the movie theaters, but four hours, that's quite a bit of time. Um, so uh, yeah, I'm looking for, I'll watch it. I mean, why not? I got time. I mean, yeah. Coming out Thursday. Let's go. <laughs> I, I will just remind loyal listeners of the Layered Butter podcast that one of my first rants was that three-hour <laughs> movies were too long. I said oh, three-hour movies were far too nah. long. That Avenger and no Gangs, like the, the Irishman, needed to tone it back. That nobody needed three hours to tell a story. That's all I will say about this. When we come back, <sighs> we're going to talk about something that I find super fascinating. Unions. But first, we're going to take a quick break. Layered Butter is brought to you by Ola Translation, the leading Spanish-to-English translation agency. Pop quiz, Raf, how do you say layered butter in Spanish? Uh, le layered butter. <laughs> That's probably the French way to say it. But sure. uh... <laughs> the Hispanic population is one of the fastest-growing audiences in North America, so if you want your product to be found, it's time to reach them the right way. And you can do that with the help of Ola Translation. Raf, guess what? What? Layered Butter listeners can get 5% off all services by using our special code, and that code is... Butter! That's right, butter. So go out there and reach your customers in Spanish with the help of Ola Translation. And we're back. This week, we're going to talk about something that is exciting, that is unions. And I'm not talking about pairing two people together. I am talking about the organizations that help protect workers and help ensure that we have a safer and better work environment. And that is kind of the reason why we have Jen with us today. Jen is among our local environment, the expert on this topic. Jen, can you give us kind of a brief history on unions? And you don't have to go too factual, but maybe give us the context that we need to talk about unions. Yeah, totally. So, um, Trade unions or trade unions, as they started, actually started back in uh, 18th century Britain. It was part of uh, the rapid development of the industrial uh, industrializing uh, industrialization that you were seeing there. And uh, mm-hmm. workers were, you know, not being paid well. Like they were getting the worst wages, mm-hmm. the hor- horrific conditions. People were dying. And essentially what they did is they took what was originally considered the concept of a guild and having um, people yeah. in the same type of work uh, spaces. So whether it was like a carpenter or, or uh, uh, manufacturing, stuff like that. And they've decided to use their collective energy in order to enforce their employer to provide livable wages for people and safe work for people. So at its core, what they are is a collection of people that are using their power to, um, uh, give themselves the leverage needed to enforce changes in a workspace. Like that's at its core what it is. And when it came over to North America, actually we'd see unions first started coming over into Canada first before it came into North America um, because of our British connections and British ties. A lot of the unions that you were seeing in Britain had come over here. Then that expanded into the United States that were having the same sort of um, issues with providing safe uh, equitable work for workers. Um, so what it did is it guaranteed wages. It's the reason why we have weekends. It's the reason why 
Yeah. Um, people have health care and health protections and safety protections. It's it's why we have a nine to five work week. I mean, sometimes people were used to working 16 hours, uh, 12 hours in a day. Um, it, it fought back against the idea of using children uh, in, in unsafe working conditions as it was um, before. And what it really did is, was putting a focus on workers first. It was highly, <laughs> highly controversial at the time. People died forming unions and the government was on the side of the employer. Um, people... They did not want the average worker imposing this much uh, command over th their employers. Right. So in some cases you hear when you hear of scab workers or um, union busting, what essentially what it was is they would bring in um, other people to come in and do the work, usually for uh, a temporary higher wage than what they were paying the average worker as a way to incentivize people not to join the unions. And um and where you get more controversy in that, too, is um, quite often they would use social uh, political groups within that country that weren't so popular. So in America, you would see um, like Irish uh, workers who were coming uh, and immigrating to Amer America uh, were used against some of the people uh, that were unionizing at the time. And it really uh, allowed them to play on the social and racial uh, disparities that were happening in the United States in a way to break unions. Uh, eventually, you see people as they realize what the benefits for unions were and giving more strength and, and power to workers. Um, you started to right. get, um, uh, uh, sorry, more people joining in, uh, but it, it yeah. was it was a slow process, and it's really you see more yeah. of it in the fifties and sixties, especially as people were coming back from the war. Um, as you started to see the the creation of like larger communities with the baby boomers, um, that you see the real strength in a union and how that's doing it, and, and it affected all areas of life. So, including right. in Hollywood, you have you know the writers' guilds coming. Um, you have uh, the the uh, like set workers and everyone coming together yeah. and deciding to say that hey, what we're doing is a craft. It's skilled work, yeah. and we yeah. deserve to have uh, protections in in terms of security of our jobs and the wages that we're getting, and um, we should have some sort of control and destiny over our own workspace. So um, that's kind of like the a mini yeah a mini mini lecture on unions. Raf, you've you've. You've worked on sets. Um, yeah. How present are unions? Are you part of a, have you been a part of a union? 100%. I mean, I'll give you a brief from then on my experience. So um, uh, when I first graduated from university, I got picked up to be a cable puller on a show um, uh, called Stanley Dynamic, which is a, it's like a TV sitcom and whatnot. And I was just a cable puller. <laughs> I was not union. Um, so I was lucky enough to get in there and it's very difficult to break into um, a show uh, when you when you don't have connections or you don't have anything like that, um, and sometimes mm. you make those big breaks, uh, big breaks to uh, being a non-union, and and sometimes those are little jobs, so labor jobs. So I was a cable puller. I helped with the video department. Um, and, and, but after that, you know, I broke into the industry, and I and I um, had a choice to join IATSE or uh, Directors Canada, which I'm now part of. Um, and it depends on where your focus is and what, what you want to do on a set if you want to work in a trade. So if you want to be um, a, a grip or you want to be an electrician or if you if you want to even be a, a transport driver, IATSE, or even camera, um, NABET is another union that holds those type of departments. Well, DGC has uh, assistant directors, um, uh, has accountants and editors, and um, there's different departments within each union, and they all have their own set of rules. 
uh, wages and benefits, depending on what you want to do. Um, in all of the shows that I've worked on, it's always been union. So I've always worked with um, a union crew. Um, uh, the only time where I met someone who's on union is if they're doing all maybe locations um, and uh, like lo uh, locations personnel who's not part of the DGC or any part of the um, these are any of the uh, unions I've mentioned before. Uh, but also actors. Actors are part of unions. We have Actra, we have SAG-AFTRA um, that control a lot of the um, uh, talent that, uh, that we see on screens, and that includes background talent. Uh, but there's also, you know, non-union actors um, mm -hmm. uh, that uh, get their gigs from uh, being background, right? And right. They, they, they just, um, uh, they're, they're referred to, to us through agents, right? Or um, the casting through agents. Um, but they don't necessarily have a union to that pay their dues to. Yeah, it's very so present. How how do you think having unions on set shapes like the work that happens? I mean, without a doubt, having these because the sets are long hours. I mean, you could go anywhere from like an eight. No, it's impossible to have an eight-hour day. <laughs> you can have like a twelve-hour day minimum, and then you can go to like a twenty-one-hour day, and then um, the union set these rules. And um, in coordination with studios, producers, and whatnot, to ensure that these rules are met and the safety and the um, fairness of the uh, of these workers are met on set, um, and that includes wages, that includes um, meal times, um, uh, yeah. and turnaround times. I mean, maybe if you're on non-union set, um, and uh, what we call a turnaround is when you're done your when you're when you wrap and you finish at let, let's say midnight, um, you're supposed to have six hours in between before you go to your next shift. Sometimes, uh, maybe on non-union sets, it may be possible where you could have a real no turnaround time. You're back on you're expected to be back on set, you know, right away in three hours or five hours, which is insane and in inhumane. But I'm sure that stuff happens, especially with a lot of um uh, small, small productions um that are on a really tight budget. Um uh without the enforcement of um unions it becomes very difficult to crunch time or, or even uh, prevent some of these things from happening right and right. Um, that's why unions are so important i mean without them on sets i think it would be chaos right and yeah. also as an organization let's be real because um with so many different departments and it could go from like the pa to the, uh, like the office pa to the onset pa to the um, transportation department to even craft service everyone needs their own um, a batch of rules and also um, like anyway, standardized, like standardized the way yeah, that they operate, right? Yeah, it, it's literally the way they operate. So there's going to be moments where, um, uh, uh, you know, if some if a an employee or a crew member has to take over someone else's shift or they they they're doing more responsibility than their job is entitled to, they can seek an upgrade and then they can get their extra extra bump in pay. So like 200 bucks, 300 bucks, even if you're a background actor, um, if you get told by an AD or even uh, the director, Hey, uh, I want you to say, you got this in the scene. That is a pay upgrade, right? Yeah. Or even if they ask you to move your car into the shot, that's a pay upgrade. So um, these unions are here to help you um, in, in your benefit too. And, you know, I would say the only cost is you have to pay dues, but I think at the end of the day, it, it, it that's why they're there. You're paying right. them for the um, for these opportunities. 
So yeah, Jen, does uh, Raft's experience on set kind of reflect what you would expect from a unionized work environment? Like, is that kind of what you envisioned? Uh, like the the work in a movie set would be like. Yeah. So really, at the end of the day, the, the union is there to help workers um, navigate the space uh, that they're in. Yeah. So g- it gives them uh, security in the way that they function at work. So whether or not it's information about, you know, I- exactly that, like when they're entitled to higher pay, when they're entitled to breaks, um, you know, mm-hmm. if like, especially now in the middle of the pandemic, so many workers are not working. A lot of them might be using their union dues to get benefits or support that stuff like that, especially if you're a struggling actor um, or, or I don't know how that would work if you're um, doing like directing or, or stuff like that. But um, you know, it, these are basic protections that people kn- need to know. And at the end of the day, like I, I always want to emphasize with people, when you work for an employer, um, even if they have HR, they are not there to represent you. HR is right. there to manage the way that a corporation uh-huh. deals with uh-huh. its employees. They are not your representative. Having a union there yeah. that speaks specifically to your needs and the needs of uh, specialized to your uh, your skill set and role set is so uh, important. And so that's why even sometimes people might wonder, like, you know, why is there a different union for writers versus craft services versus actors? Um, because you need to have someone that specifically yeah. can speak to that experience. And, I, and I'm assuming just when you're on a movie set, if there's a clash uh, between those two groups, you need to know how you are going to navigate that. those uh, grievances and so it's so important to make sure that you're represented so um from what you're saying like like it makes sense and you'll see that people see that in all forms of their workplace so um it shouldn't be anything new if you've worked in a unionized environment but it's they're so crucial and you know i wanted to bring up um uh every uh, every time you're on set we have a call sheet which just lists every person that's working and what they're doing for the day etc at the bottom of usually the first page of the call sheet it lists um stewards which are representatives for each union or each department on, uh, within a union. So you would have X person being the um, uh, representative for, you know, the, um, the director's guild. You would have X union for um, camera and or IATSE, et cetera, et cetera. And sometimes you have actress stewards on set as well um, to keep, especially if you have really, really big background days, you might see um, a steward come in just to check in on everyone to see how processing is going in terms of, um, getting everyone ready for the scenes, um, is everyone being fed, et cetera, et cetera. So um, uh, it's really important to have those representatives there so that whenever something happens, uh, you have someone to talk to and then, you know, your needs are met. And uh, the union's there to back you up. So it's very important. And I can imagine even in yeah, like think- sets where there's children. I just, one of my friends, she she's working yes, on a yes. television show in Canada here. Yeah. And uh, yeah. it's largely children on her cast. So, I mean, making sure that those kids go to school just because you're an actor doesn't mean yes, you, yes. Know, you can Im- I, get away from all those I, I gotta things. Bring this up. I got to bring this up. When um, I've worked on a, a ton of films and TV shows with um, sets and it's mandatory um, uh, to bank hours within a school uh, within a shooting day for kids to go to school because kids can only uh, be on set from, I think, I remember correctly, it's going to be like eight to 10 hours or 12 hours, something like that, max. And then what we call it, we call it pumpkin time, which means that they're done. They're done for the day, right? But within that day, um, the ADs um, are, uh, are the assistant directors. Their job is to find time that they can go to school with the onset teacher to ensure that the, um, they can check that off and say, hey, so the, to the union, they say, hey, they went to school for X amount of time. We're good for the week. Right. And yeah. then so that the union doesn't clash with the producers 
and mm-hmm. that gets involved with the set and it gets ugly. But yeah, school is big. <laughs> one one could imagine that without like the unions, the the studios Chaos. would to to quote uh, Michael Jordan meme say fuck them kids and just let them. <laughs> I mean, Shirley Temple driven to drink early, right? You gotta watch Um, these kids, yeah. To, to the point that you guys are saying about uh, unions being the people that are are in your corner, I thought there were some recent examples of unions fighting for workers that we could dive a little deeper. The first one that comes to mind is the most recent one that was in the news, and that's the Writers Guild of America that had, I guess, uh a difference in what they viewed as a positive relationship with their agents and what the agents were saying. Now, if someone, if for, for someone who's listening to this and doesn't know the full story, I would say, please read it because I won't be able to give the depth that it deserves. But the basic understanding of it is that a writer has an agent to pitch them to, to projects, right? They're supposed to have your best interests at heart, but the way that these agents are are set up now in these big uh, agent groups and agent associations is that they have something called packaging fees, which means that if I represent a writer and I also represent a director, if I get both names attached to a project, then I, as an agent, start making some money once the show becomes profitable, right? And it's not like a small, yeah. it's like something like 10% of a certain amount of the cost. And so the idea there is that the agent is now thinking of their own like financial needs and priorities versus what they should be thinking of when they're representing the writer. And a second part of this argument is that agent groups had set up their own kind of production mini studios kind of. And so they're thinking, well, it's like, well, now you're like, if you can't be both the person that has my interest at heart and the interest at heart of the studio, right? There's a conflict there. Right. And so the Writers Guild of America were like, this isn't right. We have to do right by our union members. And so basically it was a big year and a half fight, basically, where they fired all their agents. They had to basically Bruh. pitch themselves wow. to these places. Yeah. And it finally got resolved. But like, what are your what are, what are some of your thoughts on how this happened or like what you would take of this about unions? Uh, Jen, let's start with you. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, it, it, like you said before, like it, it adds a conflict of interest. Right. So essentially, like what what they end up being are like lobbyists. Right. So think of a lobbyist to the government. Like these are people who have specific goals in mind for their own financial interests. So for the production companies that they're creating and um, they're not listening to uh writers and and when you think of someone selling their work right considering when you sell it to these big agencies especially in the age of you know uh with so many online streaming services so many of these companies just want content and so you're selling over your content you may not have that much control over the contract especially if you're new and these people own your work in perpetuity for you know right they can do whatever changes with it it might be packaged with a director who maybe you don't see as someone who could properly represent your work or, or discuss your work and just you're removing the creator from the content, which is like always, always problematic and something that we should try, try to avoid. Um, so I think they were right. Like the union in stepping in for their work or uh, for their writers in that way um, to make sure that uh, the the artistic integrity of their work for sure is, is, uh, protected, but then also the financial interests of these, uh, uh, agents, I mean, of the writers yeah. are also protected. It's, it's paramount. Like people deserve fair wages for the work they produce. And I think that there should be something in there that protects the, uh, creative integrity of the work as well. 
And uh, yeah, yeah, I think it was a great, a great move on their part, on the union's part. And I think an important thing to consider when we talk about these is that we are not like, for example, unions are not fighting against, you know, like uh, the 65 year old grandmother in the corner that's barely scraping by off her like retirement funds. Right. They're taking on like big billion dollar Hollywood industry. Like that's important to keep in the perspective. Um, Raf, to Jen's point about how things have changed uh with streaming and everything like i know that some of these contracts have been in place from before that mm. so what are your thoughts kind of in like fighting for for different um i guess kind of changes and rights as the situation around us changes yeah and i i 100 agree with jen i think it's very important whether it's a director whether it's an actor whether it's a uh, a grip electric uh ad or anything anyone in the creative arts industry i think it's important to uh, protect these rights and protect these jobs right because I think in one of the articles um, that I was reading uh, in preparation for the podcast is that the way television is nowadays is very short. They're shorter now. You're not going to get 24 episode seasons anymore. So a lot right. of these work, um, uh, the writer's rooms, I find, would be smaller. I find mm-hmm. that there's a lot of TV shows now with maybe one writer and one uh, director. Um, uh, and that's uh, kudos to them because they're they're powerful. They're they're fantastic showrunners and whatnot. But some of these opportunities um, grow smaller, right? I think you'll only find maybe crime procedurals, maybe some comedy shows like broadcast TV that have a bigger writers' rooms. And um, uh, some of these writers um, are you know it's challenging to get a ongoing gig, especially something that you know what if you're a writer on Big Bang Theory and you were on that show for what seven, eight, nine seasons. But then you you become a um, a staff writer on let's say a smaller show that's only running for five episodes a season and it's maybe what uh, three seasons only that's only what fifth that's math right that's fifteen episodes of work right uh-huh. and what are you doing on your off time so I right. I think it really gets important for the unions to really um uh, protect their employees especially and uh, again I'm, I'm focusing more of the writers just because um, mm-hmm. in, in reference to the article. I'm sure directors um, and but also, um, yeah. uh, uh, you know, sta- uh, crew members want to make sure that they, they have the job security they need for every show and every gig. Right. That's what that's what the unions are there for. For sure. Uh, another kind of story that came up recently where unions were a big part of it was reopening sets for COVID. Right. And. I don't know Mm -hmm, if you guys, mm -hmm. uh, if people know this, but like they were a big part of the conversation of what standards needed to be set for it to be safe to to return to the work environment. And Jen, does that surprise you in any way or is that what you would expect? I was really actually pleased. I was following this a lot, particularly because only in my own experience with our group, my store trying to unionize. COVID was a huge issue for a lot of people. And, you know, you shouldn't mm-hmm. be going to work and fearing for your life. So the um, the effort that they were putting in on these sets to make sure that people are protected by doing the, yeah. Uh, yeah. the the screening. I know it's very expensive. It's a very expensive process, but it's it's it was really pleasing to see it. And, and not only yeah. are you seeing it with the big studios, um, I follow like smaller apps and people that are doing, I think Kevin on stage was one of them. He's a smaller company. And they're talking about having to invest in uh, testing sites on site uh, and like the, the they're getting tested like three, four, five times a week um, to make sure that everyone is in safe. And, and like th- these are the, the small things um, that people might not think about, but 
what unions yeah. fight for. It's not, I think, especially when people are trying to detract from unions, they always want to think like, oh, these people just want more money, but it's more than money. You're, you're, you're fighting for safety in the workplace as well. And having COVID protections, COVID testings is one of the ways that unions can support workers. It's not always a monetary gain uh, precisely. There are other ways that um, they offer benefits. And and so it was really, um, and and really, when you really look at uh, unions, um, they're doing better than what most countries countries or even cities are doing in terms of making sure that people are wearing masks when they're on sites, um, that they're getting tested, they're contact tracing. I mean, could you imagine? I mean, the governor of Texas is probably looking at some of these sites and just losing his mind uh, because he can't uh, imagine that someone's being so thorough about testing. But like, this is what it takes to not only beat a virus, um, to make sure that people are being careful, but pr- to protect your um, st- uh, crew and actors. Um, I think it's a great, great sign and direction um, to be going in. And, you yeah. know, I wanted to jump on the fact that, like, um, the creative industry is a very, you know, I don't want to say gig. I mean, it's like a gig based industry. You're, you're, you're going to have a job only maybe three to five months a year. Right. And then sometimes there'll be lulls because there's only so much in production at X amount of time. Right. Um, uh, and <clears throat> to have these unions and producers and studios work together to find a solution, but also implement these testing sites to protect, um, you know, the staff, the crew, actors, etc., um, and even the public too, I think is very, very important because if you think about it, um, these jobs and the livelihoods of these people who are affected clearly by COVID were given a second chance because now the producers can say, okay, now we're safe. Now we can know that this uh, the crew will be a-okay because we are constantly testing them. And if God forbid someone gets sick, we can shut it down and or find a replacement uh, to make sure that, you know, things can continue running on a schedule. They just have to adjust. And I think that's very important, especially in an industry where um, it's contract based and you're only working for X amount of time. So every day means everything. Right. So, right. yeah. And that's why I think, I think it was early last year. Oh, sorry. I, doubt, I think it was early no. last year. Uh, there was a huge thing that came out when Tom Cruise had yelled at some oh, yeah, their set for not I'm wearing masks. And I actually, this is one time, like, I support <laughs> Tom Cruise. I mean, like, you, when you think of the amount of money and effort and energy that's going to creating these productions, that someone would yeah. be so careless by not wearing a mask while you're on set when you're working, when you're literally protecting your livelihood and that of your coworkers, I mean, it's, it's unimaginable that people would even take those type of risks. So, I mean, there's, there's something to be said for having, for a corporation, having the moral courage to do the right thing. Cause very often yeah. we don't expect enough from our corporations to do that. We don't expect them to, to lead um, morally. And this was, this was the right thing. Financially was the right thing to do, but morally it was the right decision to make as well. Yeah. And I think that's the, like, again, it's like studios make money off these projects. It is in their interest to do these things, to be able to go back to work and create these movies that are billion. It's a billion dollar beyond billion dollar industry. Right. Um, Just in case people don't know some of the the agreements that were put in place in conversations between the union and the studios was, you know, people had to be wearing personal protective gear. There had to be testing of cast and crew members. There had to be a dedicated coronavirus supervisor to oversee yeah. it all. 
I think COVID that may, team. may have been Tom Cruise's job officially on that set. No, I'm kidding. He was not the, the coronavirus, <laughs> but he acted like it. But, it, you know, they even put in place like zone systems. So it's like to limit the yeah. interaction that people had. So they're only interacting with people that they really need to. If there was people that needed to interact more, they got tested more often. Actors who can't do their work while wearing protective gear were tested more often. So it was a lot of safety precautions that were put in place thanks to the the work of the unions in agreement with the studios. One last thing, I guess, that came up uh, came up when I was researching more about unions. Unions had a big push last November to send their members to the polls to get them to participate in the elections in, in the U.S. election last November. Um, why do you guys think that unions so often intersect with politics? Uh, Jen, what, what do you think? Yeah, so I, I think what's really important to remember, it, it's so funny, especially when I find that when you see actors or crew people talking about politics or their political lives, like no one lives in a silo, right? So you are part of the world um, and it's natural that you would have an opinion. So if you are an actor or producer or, or a grip and, you know, your, your interest is making sure that you have uh, uh, tax breaks that you, so you can yeah. put on a production or uh, subsidies that are provided to the arts, then you are you should be interested in politics. And the great thing about a union is that you have uh, the this base of people who not only can collectively use their power to negotiate with your employer, you can use your influence to uh, speak to a higher power. So speak to your local officials, your politicians to make sure that the concerns of your industry are um, actually heard from. And so you, you're really what you're doing is you're aligning your life's work uh, with political power and you're making sure that your interests, whether it's for your group um, uh, is heard and, and considered. And it's something that people need to do. So I, I mean, I, myself, um, I work uh, for Toronto community housing. I am part of the union. And so when a, a election comes through, I make sure that I'm voting for officials uh, that support my idea of providing safe, yeah. affordable housing for people. So I would expect that an actor, if you are, or a, a, a grip or anyone working on a set um, is work, uh, wants to use their political power, they're, they're going to do it for people that are going to secure their jobs, make sure they're doing it in a safe space, and make sure that they're doing it in a way that expands the ability for people to be included in the arts in, in whatever way that they choose to do it. Um, so unions are really good because they have this built-in system already, and it's and it's formalized, and um, it allows people to quickly connect with each other. They usually will provide an update or a newsletter that runs down like the most important things of the day and, and things that they want their members to consider and more often or not they will you know either provide money to political candidates that they believe that are going to support their union members or they will inform their union members of the best propositions to vote for or the best candidate to vote for who will um, best represent them in uh, whatever political arena that they're voting and so um, the unions are quite important they've always been important for politics um, because of the large yeah. amount of people that are a part of them yeah, Raf, as a member uh, of unions, have you um, seen that push to to participate in elections or seen them uh, do actions that could be perceived as political? Like, is that your experience in, in the unions of, of the sets that you've been on? Yeah, I, I think it's 100 um, percent. What's it called? In line with what Jen says. I mean, I've been on productions where um, uh, especially if there's a voting day. Um, there are there are times where you are able to leave set as long as you're 
um, department's okay with it and it's appropriate to do so, you can spend some time off to go vote, come back, and then you you know resume your day, right? Um, so I, I also think there's um in, inherent um ideology with any kind of union and and politics because as much as they would push um maybe a uh, the encouragement to to go vote um uh, uh for any political party power blah 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 a union itself is almost like a political party in itself i mean you're going to have a president you're going to have a vice president you're going to have a director of this director of that etc 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 and i think with the new generation of, of creatives coming out and a lot of people um, uh, going into unions. I think it's also psychological in the sense that, you know, every time they get that newsletter, they're going to be like, don't forget, we have a town hall meeting on X date, right? And we're going to talk about politics on, uh, on this date. Um, and we want you to think about that because it's going to affect you and your rights. And then at the end of the day, the union or that um, guild in uh, uh, the general uh, being would say, okay, guys, don't forget to vote nationally outside of uh, the creative spectrum, right? right. So um, I, I do think it's like a little nesting doll, a little, you know, nesting dolls. You have one and one and one, and you keep going down, down, down this little hole. But um, yeah. I, I, I do think they're all connected, and um, uh, politics is inherently in almost everything we do. Everything is political. Yeah. You can't. Yeah, like, I always laugh political. when I hear people say, like, they're not into politics. I'm like, well, do you live life? Uh, do, you, do you have experience? <laughs> everything you do is political, right? I mean, even if you stay shut up in your, in your room and you just, you know, watch Netflix all day, that's political too, because the CRTC yeah. is trying to uh, create, uh, limit the, the amount of um, content that is being put on there, right? Like the, these are issues that they are, have to deal with constantly sure. when people lobby them. So your life is political, even if you are yeah. just gaming in your room. I, I promise you, there's someone in front I mean, of you. As you sit at home in quarantine and rewatch for the first, for the third time, your entire Shit's Creek series, remember <laughs> that a lot of that is made possible because there are rules in place to promote Canadian Correct. content yes. and to create Canadian content. So, yeah, like Jen is saying, every part of our lives is, is political. To wrap up on a much lighter, lighter note, I like want you every guys podcast to think, we do. <laughs> I want Come you guys on. to think of your favorite movie that deals with some. It, 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 about unions in some shape or form. So I'll go first because I don't want to put you guys on the spot. Mine is the Disney comedy musical Newsies. If you have not seen this movie, it is a musical uh, based on a strike of newsboys that happened in 1899. So we're talking like old ancient history. Yeah. And it had to do with like young, like mostly orphan kids going out there and selling newspapers that were really exploited. And it was, you know, like obviously the people at the top are always making a bunch of money and doing well. And so the Newsies, they had enough and they put a strike together. And this is a musical, so you can sing along and jam to some of these great songs. It also <laughs> features a very young Christian Bale singing and dancing as the lead actor of this. So that's my mini film club before film club that we will talk about later on. Uh, Raph, do you have a, a movie that you would recommend that deals with unions? I, I I think it's a union. I, I don't even remember, but I, I think it was a while ago. But it's uh, the Coen Brothers' uh, "Hail Caesar." Um, uh, it, it, I mean, it, it does feature like the creation of a movie mm -hmm. and whatnot. But if I, I don't know the specifics, but I think Josh Brolin's character—he's kind of like the um, the middleman, or kind of like the 
what do you call those? Like the fixers, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in, in Hollywood industries. And then there, I, I think there's a scandal that breaks loose. I don't remember. I, I, I'm not really a great person to ask in terms of this because I, I don't even remember too much. <laughs> this is a terrible, terrible um, uh, um, uh, promotion of this film. That, that's my for sure. Yeah, oh, let's God, go. I, I remember that movie. I mostly remember Channing Tatum being in the trailer and being on is it the swing or like yeah. film from the top. Something about like a weird angle for Channing Tatum. Jen, is there a movie that comes to mind when you think about unions? Yeah, so mine is actually a documentary by uh, Michael Moore. It's called Roger and Me. And the whole uh, point of the movie is him covering his hometown, Flint, Michigan, after uh, the GM auto plant had decided to reduce their 80,000 strong workforce to 50,000 people. And what that, that wow. effect has on a community where that was so reliant on uh, people bringing in the wages that they earned from GM. And it's just r- really done um, really good storytelling telling in the way it's kind of like uh, it features a very young actually uh, Michael Moore going on the theme mm-hmm. uh, just capturing um, the stories of a community and, and how um, changes like this can really affect not only uh, the workers but everyone because any office and business that relied on these workers coming in and spending their dollars there were affected too and now I mean we, we've we heard of Flint, Michigan and how they're suffering, they don't have great yeah. drinking water and unfortunately like what that movie is an example of is when unions are attacked because during the Reagan years a lot of deregulation happened um, that weakened unions especially in North America and specifically in the United States, um, what happens when you don't have a strong union like you, we literally have seen a city collapse as a result of it to the where people don't have fresh, clean yeah. drinking water that they can drink. So yeah. um, it's if you haven't seen it, definitely would recommend it. It's a great film. But uh, yeah. That's a great recommendation. Uh, when we come back, we're going to do our last little segment. And I'm excited for it. Before us, we're going to take another quick break. Raf, do you know, do you know what I'm a big advocate of? Video? Video. Established in 2010, Big Pick Co. has grown from a one-director production house to now working with some of the biggest brands globally. Above all else, Big Pick aims to produce work that is engaging, different, interesting, and essentially not boring. Raph, I think those are four words that I would use to describe you. Engaging, different, interesting, not boring? I love it. Yeah, there we go. You, you know what? Big Pick Co., wanted to make content that people were clicking on because of the way that it was presented. And one of the reasons Big Pig was started was because they felt they could create content that wasn't traditional and therefore provided more value to their customers. So if you want videos, what do you want, Raf? You want Big Pig Co. Let's go! And we're back. We're going to start off with our Film club, Raf. Once again, I go to you, the master Always. of movies, Ooh. the film fanatic. Ooh. Give me what you got. Hey, we've that's talked you. This, <laughs> we've talked this week uh, about kind of the behind the scenes of the Hollywood productions. Yes, and we talked earlier about union movies. So I'm not going to ask you to tell me a union movie. Instead, Raf, what's a movie that that <laughs> that takes us behind the scenes of movie making that you think people out there should watch? I have two, and uh, these are two films I really, really enjoy, but. Obviously, I gotta I gotta lay it down for Paul Thomas Anderson's Boogie Nights. Now, mm-hmm. Boogie Nights is about the the, the adult um, movie the, industry. Yeah, I was gonna say the adult movie industry, but I, I I don't know. I think it's it's a very interesting look about how movies are made, and you get a fascinating insight on directors, actors, even some of the crew members 
um, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman as a sound guy, right? Uh, who has a fantastic scene of him crying in the car. But anyway, yeah. um, the other Before film is... Before we move on to, to adaptation, I just, for people that... Oh, spoiler to alert, bro. Listen to this recommendation <laughs> and have a question, like in their mind, the answer is it's fake. And that's I will, all I will leave it there. <laughs> Let's go to adaptation, Raph. So um, Spike Jones's film starring Nick Cage, Adaptation, which is about a struggling screenwriter. Um, this is kind of a film that deals with writer's block and from a writer's perspective. And um, I think this film is fascinating, like any of Charlie Kaufman's work in Spike films. But um, yeah, you have a double uh, a double performance by Nick Cage, who plays Stone Brothers, as he's uh, trying to get a, um, a script um, to life. Um, and I think you guys should see it. I, I don't want to spoil too much because some of these films, you should experience them um, rather than hear me mumble and bumble about Listen, no I'm excited. I'm definitely going to check that one out. I have seen Boogie Nights. I've never seen Adaptation. Wait, really? Like, You've never seen yeah, Adaptation? Never. So I'm going to check that one out and I will let you I will let you know what I think uh, when we okay, come back perfect. next time. Love it. It is now time for my favorite part of the episode. It is time of for the course. hot butter takes. Um, I've been <laughs> of going. Course. I've been uh, a bit of a bummer for the last couple of weeks. So I'm happy <laughs> to announce that this one will not be upsetting in any in any way. Uh, last weekend, if you didn't know, China reissued the the 2009 3D sci-fi phenomenon, Us Mere Mortals, sometimes referred to as <laughs> Avatar. Now, <laughs> what this ended up meaning is that they made $9 million in the box office, and it was enough to put this 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 precious treasure of cinematic history back, back into the, the top position oh, yeah. of the box <laughs> office chart, overtaking <laughs> Avengers Endgame. Now, if you didn't know, Avengers uh, Endgame overtook the, the top of the box office a couple of years back. And when Avatar lost its crown, James Cameron was gracious enough to, to, to congratulate them. <laughs> he, I think he, he had to comment. He had to say something. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I want to say in my hot take this week, is, and, I, and I'm going to acknowledge that I have no proof of what I'm about to say. But my hot take <laughs> this week is that James Cameron has secretly been insecure about losing that top spot for two years now and has been plotting and plotting on how to get it back. And this is it. I think he he pushed for this movie to be brought back to theaters and he did it in China because it's far away and people wouldn't <laughs> notice the, dir the dirty work that he is doing. And I am upset because I don't think that this movie deserves to be in that top position anyway. And it's some straight up clown shit from James Cameron to do this last minute. He had a Titanic that was number one for years too, right? And then I think he only beat himself yeah yeah and, and my, again this is also disney beating itself for one two and three positions disney owns all sure, of these okay, so it fine. doesn't really matter most of my dislike from james cameron to be honest comes from reading between the lines of that time that tina fey and amy poehler made that joke about Catherine bigelow yeah. an expert on torture yeah. because she was oh married to him gosh. and so even if he's a swell dude that's kind of where i i get my perception of him but the thing I will admit to is that I don't think this movie is great. I don't think I don't understand why people love it so much. I don't understand why it made technical so much money. Marvel, buddy. It's a yeah, technical that's Marvel. it. I think we were impressed with 3D and then we took it to the top. And now I don't know. Like, if you want to know more about this movie and you have not seen it, I would suggest just like <laughs> Google Avatar plus the words like Fern Gully or Pocahontas. And you'll find a lot of interesting things worth reading. Um, I wish I could say, sorry, that this is the last time that I will talk about this. But probably not. Disney has already promised or promoted not one not two not three but four, four 
fucking sequels to this movie. <laughs> <laughs> You'll hear me rant about this movie for a I long think we're, time. I think this, uh, like the second one and third one are going to come out simultaneously like next year or something. I don't know, man. It's crazy. It's too much. It's I hate this movie. I hate everything about this. <laughs> but let's go to Jen. Jen, I happen to know that you're going to talk about the better Avatar. Yeah, so definitely. What you have to say. My Avatar, my hot take is on Avatar, uh, The Last Airbender. And so we've been taken, if you are a fan of this uh, series that originally aired on uh, Nickelodeon, you have been on a wild ride because uh, last year, Netflix had announced that they were going to recreate this show as a live action. And halfway through, I think like six months after, there were some grumblings of rumors of people not really being satisfied with the process. And then we found out that the original creators of this show we're departing for creative differences. And I was like, yeah. oh, I was like, no, it's not going to work. We're going to get some uh, like terrible thing. I'm looking at M. Night Shyamalan right now with his, with his movie <laughs> adaption of it. And I thought that was it. We were never going to see um, what was happening. And then even last week, um, they had announced one of the creative things that they were changing was Katana's age. They were going to make her like younger, which is like, guys, I need us just on a side note. We don't need to see a romantic relationship in every film that we see in order to have good storytelling. So we're like reducing her age so she could be closer to Aang so you could have some sort of romance that doesn't seem as creepy because they wouldn't have the two-year gap. Like, honestly, I'm over it. I'm over it. Yeah. (laughs) But like, that that was a whole other side note. But then Nickelodeon Hero of the Hour decided that they were going to have an Avatar studio for the creators and they brought them in. So we might actually get a really beautiful, fully realized version of this world in live action, in cartoon again, we don't know. Um, But they're basically getting free reign to recreate or retell uh, their stories in Avatar, whether it means it's expanding the world or revisiting past stories. So I am honestly very excited about this. (laughs) Right right before they go into production, they're going to be like, "We're, we're done with this. I know, I know. If they if they do what they did with Kim's convenience, I will die. That was that was gonna be my other hot take. Please, guys, sign the petition to bring back Kim's convenience. I think they wanted to I I think they wanted to bring Kim's convenient back. I think it was um uh, renewed for another season, but I think the creators just left. There's something shady going on if you read between the lines. I saw Simu Liu tweet something like one day I will be able to say more, but for now I'm just saying that I'm sad. Oh, there is something oh, going so on. I don't know. I don't want to put more mm. out there. Oh, so maybe I shouldn't get people. Maybe I shouldn't James convince Cameron, people to sign yeah. the petition. Raph, though, <laughs> Raph, bring us home. What's on mm. your mind this week? My mind is filled with Lin uh, uh, Manuel Miranda. <laughs> I mean, okay, I love Hamilton. I think he's a genius. I think he's fantastic. I think he's a wonderful guy. Mm-hmm. I just think he's been on my TV. Like too many times to count, and he's always wearing that that same hat, and he's always <laughs> doing some spoken word poetry. Um, each time he's doing a presentation or something, and I don't know. Like I'm just done with him. He's he's becoming way too overexposed for me. Um, it, it reminds me of like a couple of years ago when The Rock was in every single thing and every mm-hmm. single franchise. And again, The Rock is fantastic. Lin Manuel is fantastic. There's just too much of them on my TV right now. Yeah. I think I need a break, right? I'm also pretty sure. I think the new trailer of In the Heights came out this week, um, yes. and um, I didn't. I, I mean, I know it's his property. I know it's his um, story, his music, blah blah blah, all that kind of stuff. I didn't know he was in the movie. 
And then I saw the trailer and there he is with a cameo. And I'm like, again, yeah, come on. I think it's, <laughs> they didn't need to show that. I will say that I absolutely agree with you. I do think Lemon Miranda is overexposed. I will say that the, the 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 cameo that he has in the Heights, I guess, is like a nice homage moment to him sure. playing the, the the main role previously, and now he's just yeah. like the little Pito Wero at the beginning of the of the but, intro, right? But did they so, have to put him in that trailer? I mean, it would be a great surprise when you watch the film, but for the trailer, I mean, like, come on. I feel like they don't trust the people who have recently, you know fell in love with Hamilton as it became on Disney to know to, to sure. watch it and they just want to make yeah. sure that they get those dollars to be like hey he's in here too for me it's yeah. when he appeared on the barefoot Contessa and was making potatoes with her that's when I'm like okay Lynn manuel you're you're everywhere right now. <laughs> <laughs> why are you here on this cooking show but like whatever he was yeah. in last season's uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm. I was already, already kind of shook I was like what's going on why isn't Larry like 10 times more annoyed than I am <laughs> Yeah, but maybe anyway. he should throw away his shot for once instead. <laughs> yeah, give someone else a shot. <laughs> oh, man. I, I will say, as a final thing on the topic of Hamilton, we have released on our Instagram page yes. uh, a beautiful trailer of the best movies of 2020. And I want to give a special shout out to Lester, who is Woo-hoo! our video person on, on our team that does always wonderful work. I will say that he included Hamilton. <laughs> There's and a shot that we I can go on a full-on 10-minute psychotic <laughs> rant about why this is not a movie, but I will not. I will spare people listening. So that's where we're going to we're going to call it for this week. If you want to know more about us, you can find us on twitter.com slash layered underscore butter. We're on Instagram at instagram.com slash layered butter, facebook.com slash layered butter. You can find me on all social media platforms at R. Cockting, C-O-K-T-I-N-G. Raph, where can people find you? Hasn't changed. J. Raphael Cordero or J. Raphael on Letterboxd. Sweet. And Jen, where can people find you? Yeah, I'm on Twitter at, uh, at Mitch Jen says. Um, you can also, if you want to support union initiatives, if you go to the Instagram page, Indigo976 uh, has tons of information about the good work we're doing in, in creating a union in Saga, Ontario. So please, you know, visit, share our message. And yeah, it's been a pleasure being here, guys. I'm excited. Like, this was a good time. I'm going to be back yeah, next week, I think, it. maybe. Love I don't know. Maybe. Uh, yeah, I love it. <laughs> I loved it. It was really great. Yeah. You know what? It's been an absolute pleasure to have you. Uh, As always, I think we've had a a great string of guests for, for since we started and you are no exception here. You're so knowledgeable. You're so fun. So I'm sure we will get you back, uh, get you back sometime. You guys do great work. I'm so pleased to to see what you're doing. I love it. (laughs) For you listeners until next time. uh, That's it for us. Bye. Bye. See See ya. See ya.